We're in a series that we're calling uh, Revealed, and so we're using gender reveals just to wet the whistle a little bit. But what we're looking at is uh, a lot of Old Testament Scripture that is, is, is a little bit off the beaten path, but um, is crucial for us to understand who Jesus is. And so we've been talking about uh, texts that reveal something new about Jesus. Uh, the first week we talked about that uh, Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament as the Messiah in the New Testament, uh, as the Messiah, the expected one that, that would come, um, that the Israelites were looking for. Uh, after that, we revealed that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sin. He's the atonement. And then last week, um, Ian talked about uh, that Jesus is revealed in prophecy. And if you put all of the things that were prophesied and the life of Jesus together, it fits all of these prophecies to a point that there is no way that you can conclude anything else that Jesus is God's own Son come to earth. And so today we're going to reveal something else about Jesus that you probably haven't ever thought about, especially as an American, but I promise was a huge, huge deal to uh, a person who was a part of the nation of Israel. And so we need to clue ourselves in, and the text that we are in this week as we read chapter 8 of Core 52, we're just, just a few weeks left, and, and we'll be through that book. Um, we hope that you're still reading along with us, and if you haven't yet started, uh, not too late to start, and then you can just continue on after we're all done in, uh, at the end of 2020, and that will be worth your time if you would do that. Uh, but the text is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Joel just read it a second or two ago. And in this text, there is a prophet named Nathan. And God comes to the prophet Nathan and he says, I want you to, to deliver a message to King David, um, the king of Israel at that time. And so uh, God rattles off a bunch to Nathan. Here's what I want you to tell David. And we get down to about verse 12 and it's the last line in that uh, that verse 12 and 13 that reads this way, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Nathan, that's what I want you to tell uh, David, that I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, 2 Samuel 7, 13. And that promise is God's promise to David that he will always have an heir on the throne. And that's where we need to start today. And that promise is echoed a lot of other places. Um, in Isaiah, the chapter, the verse and chapter that was read right at the beginning of the service today uh, is one of those places. Psalm chapter 89 is one of those places. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those places. And even in Jewish writing outside of the Bible, there's this belief that a son of David of some sort, a descendant of David, would come and take his place as king, and he would reign on David's throne forever, and his kingdom would have no end. And so, God promises that David's throne would never end, and so Israelite, Israel is constantly on the lookout for this particular descendant of David to return. Um, we could call him the new David. That's what they were on the lookout for, somebody who would step in his throne and rule without end. And so, when we get to the New Testament, understand the shock uh, that, that people have when they read the gospel accounts for the very first time. And they put together very quickly that the gospel writers are applying the promise 
uh, of King David's eternal reign to a person named Jesus. Jesus, the gospel writers claim, is the one who will take David's throne and will reign forever. Now, there are a lot of places that we could go to to kind of uh, point this out, but Matthew is a really fun one, and uh, it's the first book of the first uh, of the New Testament, and even in the very first verse, Matthew starts us right off out of the gate uh, tying Jesus to David. And uh, I'm going to point a few things out. They, they're, we're going to stumble into the weeds here. They're really nerdy, so just humor me, okay, for a second. First, uh, Matthew starts his book this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, read it with me, David, the son of Abraham. And so, note first the order that Jesus is the son of David uh, and the son of Abraham. David is mentioned first, even before the father of all faith, Abraham, who lived a thousand years before. And it's a clue to us of David's importance. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that if there were a Mount Rushmore for the nation of Israel, that David, for sure, King David would be carved into the mountain, and then for sure, Abraham would be carved into the mountain, and then Moses, and we'll talk about Moses next week, would be carved into that mountain, and then David would be carved again because that's how important David was to the Israelite people. He is the, the ultimate uh, Israelite king. He's the central figure of the Old Testament. And right away, in the very first verse of his book about Jesus Christ, Matthew ties Jesus to King David. Now, skip down to verse 17, and to get there, we have to wade through all kinds of uh, fathers and son. It's a list. It's the, it's the list that you and I just skip over because it, we think it's boring. And so, uh, it reads, Abraham was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father, and so on and so on until you get to 17. And 17 reads this way, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Did you happen to catch a number in, that, in those verses? 14. Thank you. Yes, 14. You were paying attention. Good for you. There are three sets of 14 generations from Abraham to David, one of, one of the sets, then David to the exile, that's the other, and then from the exile to Jesus. The problem is, when you start counting up the fathers and sons in each set, you'll find that in David's set, there aren't 14 generations like Matthew says there are. There are only 13. Now, Matthew is an accountant, and accountants don't get numbers wrong like that. They don't make those kind of obvious mistakes. And we can compound the problem this way. If we go back to the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, we see the list of names that Matthew is actually working from. And guess how many names are on that list in 1 Chronicles chapter 3? There are 17 names. Matthew says, I wrote 14, but when you add them up, it's not, or when you count them, there are only 13, and he had a list of 17 from which to draw. What in the world is going on? Now, for us, we get all antsy when numbers don't add up like that, um, but for Jewish people, 
numbers had symbolic value that sometimes superseded their numeric value. And so, what Matthew is doing here is what every good Jewish father would do when he's doling out the inheritance to his kids. He would take the oldest child and would give them a double portion, the oldest brother. We could say it this way, that the most important child would get twice what everybody else got. And in this text, David is that child. And so, what Matthew is doing here is he's giving David a double portion. And so, if we give David his double portion, in other words, if we count him twice, now what does that final number look like? It's no longer 13. We count David twice, and it's 14. And what does that tell us? It tells us that in this whole list of names that David is the most important name, and Matthew is trying to tie Jesus to David. One more for grins. Uh, go, to, go down to verse 20. When we skip down to that verse in the first chapter of Matthew, there's an angel that in his declaration happens to, to emphasize the fact that Joseph is the son of David. In other words, he's descended from the throne of David, and so Jesus has the right lineage. And by the time we get to verse 20, it's the sixth time that David's name has been mentioned by Matthew. And so, we just need to look at the name David because there's something else going on besides the number 14. Uh, actually, we've already made something of the number 14, but there's something more to it, and this would have jumped out to uh, Jewish readers. Now, when you went to kindergarten, hopefully you learned some ABCs, right? And hopefully you learned uh, how to count to 10 at least, all right? And then in doing those two things, what you learned in kindergarten was that there were two separate systems. You had the ABCs, and those were for spelling. You had numbers, and those were for counting, okay? It was not so if you were in Jewish kindergarten. They had one system for both. Uh, Jews would use their ABCs. And each letter of the alphabet was also assigned a numerical value. And so, as you wrote the names of people, each person's name had a numerical value. Let me show you how it works. Uh, D, V, D would be the way that the Hebrew writers would have written the, the, the name David, okay? There's no consonants or there's no vowels in uh, Hebrew, and so D, V, D means David. D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so it was assigned the numerical value of four. You got it. Yeah, you're picking up. V was the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and so it was assigned the, the numerical value of six. Yes, you got it. So, D plus V plus D. We would write it four plus six plus four equals what? Somebody say the Sesame Street number of the day. 14, yes, surprise, D plus V plus D equals 14. Do you know why Matthew chose 14 generations for each set when there were obviously more? It's because he's not concerned about the math. He's concerned about the message and the whole genealogy. 
points to the number 14, which is also the word for David, who is the only person on the list to get a double portion of it all, and the very first Jewish patriarch mentioned, and anyone with the slightest bit of Jewishness would have read Matthew chapter 1 and put the pieces together that the promise that God made to David is that his throne would last forever, and that promise is now being fulfilled in his descendant named Jesus. That was the message. Nobody would have missed that. And think about this. That's the part we skip over because we don't think there's anything good there. That's just one little page of Matthew, and we skip it because we don't think there's anything good there. We could go to a lot of other New Testament voices and find much the same thing. We could go to Luke chapter 1 and the birth narrative in Luke. We could go to Luke chapter 2 and we would read about the city of David and about Jesus being connected to the throne of David. We could go to John chapter 7 where people put together that Jesus was a descendant of David. Uh, He could be the Messiah. We could go to Acts chapter 2 where Peter reminds his his audience, that Jesus was David's heir and descendant who would take his throne. We could go to Acts chapter 13 where Paul says the same thing. Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter, three, chapter 2 uh, that Jesus is the offspring of David. That's what, that's what Paul writes in, even in Revelation, John's words are that Jesus is the root of David in chapter 5. And he even uses Jesus' own words. And Jesus says, I am the descendant, the root of David, the bright morning star. There is this overwhelming message by the New Testament writers that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that one will come, take the throne, and will reign forever. And all of that together, there's a small mountain of evidence that reveals to us that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the new David that people were looking for, that Jesus is on the throne, and that His reign will never end. And it's important to see all that, and it's probably more important to see why that's the case. Why is Jesus the King? Why is He the new David? Why is He on the throne? Why is His reign never going to end? It's because of the kind of King Jesus was and is. And He's not our kind of King. So we need to play a little game. How many of you know the Family Feud? How many of you like the Family Feud? Yeah, something like that. Okay, I'm going to do my best Steve Harvey here. And uh, the top four answers are on the board, all right? They're in there somewhere. And we may not be able to do, you know, like family versus family here, but I, I'm just expecting you to just shout out the answers, okay, when, when, you, when you think you know one of them, all right? So, here's the question. When someone mentions the king, this was an actual family feud question, by the way. When someone mentions the king, to whom might they be referring? I, I heard Jesus. Is Jesus on the board? Yes, Jesus is on the board. I love any chance I get to use Jesus' senior picture. I love to do that. It's wonderful. I also heard back here, Elvis. Is Elvis on the board? There he is, the king. All right. We got two 
two down, two to go. What do we think? Martin Luther King, well done. Is Martin Luther King up on the board? There he is. I will say you're the first service to get Martin Luther King. Good job. Good job. And there's a, there's a fourth king up there. What do you think? Oh, LeBron. Is it LeBron? It's not LeBron. Unbelievable that it's not LeBron. But it just means, Brian, that Jordan is still the king. That's what it means. Okay. Um, one more guess. Anybody? This one's a hard one. Kurt. Show me the Burger King. There he is. Look at that. Well done, Kurt. Nice job. Here were the top four answers. 81 people out of 100 said Elvis Presley. Uh, Seven people out of 100 said uh, God or Jesus. Three people out of 100 said Martin Luther King Jr. And two people out of 100, including Kurt, said the Burger King. Um, And no one said LeBron. So I, I don't know what to make of that. Now, that's, that's, that's kind of fun, um, but when we think about our version of what a king is and what comes to mind when we think about king, what we think about is rule and authority and strength and dominion. We think about how it, it surely would be good to be the king because then I could make all the rules and I would be above all the rule and authority, and we think that that's the place to be. We have this little game that we, that we play called checkers, and we move our pieces across the board, and once we get them across the board to the other side, we say, king me, king me, right? And that, if there's a mantra that, that we have for our lives, it's that, king me. We, in every realm, we're constantly trying to say, king me, we're try, trying to get other people to agree that we are the king in some shape or form or fashion. One man who had incredible insight, and he said this, that every one of us wants to be king of a hill, um, but the number of aspiring kings in the United States always dwarfs the number of available hills. And so, what we do in our country is we just build more hills, and that's true. We have the hill of being the center of attention. Look at me, King me. We have the hill of acquisition. We have the hill of gratification, the hill of power, the hill of reputation, the the hill of uh, respect. And we need other people to see what we've done, how good we are, uh, how important we are, how great we are. King me, King me, King me. And And the truth is that no matter how many hills that we build and try to get on top of, there's really only one hill at the end of the day and Jesus is the king of it, but it's a hill unlike any other hill that you can imagine. Jesus will take the concept of king, and He will turn it on its head, and He's not the kind of king that we envision. As you read the New Testament and read about the life of Jesus, never once will you find Him stepping forward and saying, king me. Never once will you find Him claiming to be the king that He was. In fact, there's one event where a mob of people want to make Him king by force, and He just walks right through the middle of them. He just walks away. And so, here's a man who from his birth is hailed as the promised eternal king, and then in life, 
He's proclaimed as God's promised eternal king. He's given the title of God's promised eternal king by those who know him best. And he, he has the perfect lineage to be God's promised eternal king. But never, not once, does he ever claim to be God's promised eternal king. Never once does he say, king me. And not only does he not claim to be king, but the things that he does claim seem to be the exact opposite of what a king would do and what a king would say. He said this, for even the Son of Man came to be not to serve, but came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That doesn't sound like a king kind of move. In John chapter 13, uh, Jesus is having his uh, disciples go to a room where they will celebrate the Passover meal, and they've walked on dirty, dusty streets. And usually in that kind of setting, there would have been at the door where they were meeting a servant who would wash feet. But on this night, it's Jesus, the King, who washes the feet of His disciples. It's God's promised eternal King of kings who gets on His knees and washes that's not a king me kind of move. It's exactly the opposite. So, what we see is here's a king whose scepter, whose uh, symbol of power and authority is not a scepter. It's, it's a towel. It's a basin. It's dirty knees, and it's muddy water. And the way John writes about that event that night can outline Jesus' whole mission on the earth. This was kind of astounding when I stumbled on this. Uh, John writes this, that in verse 4, he rose from supper just as Jesus had risen from his eternal throne in heaven. And he laid aside his garments just like Jesus laid aside his glory in heaven and all of his privilege as the Son of God. And John writes that he wrapped a towel around himself just like Jesus wrapped himself in humanity when he came to earth to be born in flesh. And then John writes that Jesus then washed the disciples' feet. It was the most menial act of service that one could do in that day, just like the very next day he would die a degrading death of a criminal on a cross to pay your sin debt and my sin debt. And then verse 12, John writes, when he finished washing feet, he took up his garments again and he returned to his place of honor, just like after he cried from the cross, it is finished. He was taken up from the grave and seated again at the right hand of God the Father. And it's a towel that tells us what kind of king Jesus is. The early church would sing a hymn, and we don't have the melody of the hymn. We don't know how it went, but we have the words. Paul writes them for us in Philippians chapter 2, and they would have sung this. Imagine it as a song. It would have been great. Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus washed the feet of His disciples, if you remember the story in John chapter 13, there was an objector. He was going around washing feet, and he came to the feet of Peter. And Peter said, oh, no, 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 you're not going to wash my feet, because Peter knew that washing feet was beneath the dignity of a king, especially the new eternal king, David, Jesus, who will reign forever. And he's horrified at Jesus' actions. You're not going to wash my feet. No, 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 no. That's not what a king does. And you and I, we're like Peter. Because you and I and Peter would have been perfectly comfortable washing Jesus' feet, going to His throne, bending down, washing His feet. That's normal because that's what you do when you're around a king. You wash His feet. But for, for the king to get out of his chair and to come and to wash our feet, that's, that's what we can't wrap our head around. And that's what Jesus does. And what He's teaching here in that act is that the posture of a servant is the normal and established posture for the living God Himself. See, Jesus' idea of king is not our idea. Our idea is king me, but Jesus' idea is, I want to serve you. How can I serve you? And He turns everything upside down. And we saw it in in Philippians chapter 2 that there is a side Uh, 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 of bowing to Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord, but that's only half the picture, and it's not the important half. The, The important half is to see the eternal King above all kings, whose throne will never end, getting off of His throne and coming and serving you and knowing that you will never be able to outserve Him. If you're normal... That, that gives you a mixed reaction. You, you're, you're kind of conflicted. On one hand, wow, wow. I mean, that, that the king, the eternal king of kings would get off his throne and come and serve me. That, that's amazing. On the other hand, wait a minute, we're like Peter, right? Hold on. If God starts serving us, then, then doesn't, make that, uh, doesn't it make us the center? I mean, couldn't that result in pride and self-centeredness? Couldn't we get to the point where we're, where we're totally stretched out and we're telling Jesus that He missed a toe? But if you follow Jesus for long, you'll find exactly the opposite. You'll find that a God who is on His knees in front of you, washing your feet, doesn't lead you to pride, but utter humility. A king serving me doesn't make me more self-centered, it makes me more God-centered. And here's why. If, if my only view of God is that He's the supreme king on top of the ladder and the chain of command, which that is true, but if that's my only view of God, then that's our normal view of kings. And what do we do with our normal view of kings? That always makes us more self-centered because we're always fixated uh, on how I'm relating to the king. 
kings rule and they smash and they purge and they conquer. And so we fear and we straighten up and we walk the red carpet and we, we bow and we're, we're concerned. Uh, am I bowing low enough? Am I saying the right things? Do I have the secret handshake down? Do, is he like, does he like me? Is he going to kick me out of here? Am I making progress towards him? What can I do to make my way up to him? And do you see how all of the, the focus is suddenly now lasered on me, religion? causes us to be preoccupied with ourselves. Religion says that there's the God, he's, on the, he's the ultimate king, He's on the throne, now climb your way up to Him and good luck with that. And we think about in that situation, all we can think about is how am I going to get enough rope and enough pitons to make that climb? And we are centered on ourselves. It's just king me with church clothes on. But Christianity is different. Christianity says, oh, there's, there's a God on His throne. Absolutely, He's on His throne, and He will always be on His throne, but hang tight, because there's no way you can make it up there. And what He's going to do is He's going to come off of His throne, and He's just going to come and kneel in front of you, and He's going to serve you. And when I see Jesus, the King of kings, kneeling before me in self-emptying love, there's nothing that I can think about except Him. That kind of love knocks me off my throne, it knocks me off my center, and now Jesus becomes the center. And what the towel teaches us is that the only way to meet the living God is at the bottom rung of the ladder. He is found nowhere else, and to say that Jesus is the King is to say that Jesus is a foot washer. It's to say that He laid His life down for us. And the foot washing that He does for His disciples that night is a picture of what would come hours later. Later, Jesus would go to a cross in the ultimate sacrifice of service, and only that ultimate stooping down for us will cleanse us from sin. Only the sacrifice of an eternal promised King can atone for our sin debt. And unless the king serves with a towel and a cross, we can't ever be clean. When Peter objected, here's what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Peter, unless you let me wash you, you can't be clean. Do you know what that means for you and me? It means this, unless we accept His sacrifice for us, the cross. We will never be right with God. We have to let Him do the cleansing. Religion is getting yourself clean and making yourself presentable to God, which is a fool's errand, by the way. Christianity is the opposite. It's God, the King, kneeling with a towel, with a cross, and cleansing you so that you are presentable to an eternal God. And so, the Jesus revealed to us today is that Jesus is the promised eternal King who serves. And it's not His claim to be King that puts Him on, on the throne, because He never makes that claim. It's His willingness to serve, His willingness to go to a cross. His sacrificial love for you and me that paves the way for His enthronement. Right after Jesus washes his, 
disciples' feet, and He returns to the table, He teaches. And He just says one simple line, but if you and I will begin to follow it, it will change every relationship you have, and it will turn them to gold. Here it is. He says when He gets back to His seat, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. We would have expected to hear him say something slightly different. We would expect Jesus to say, hey, since I washed your feet, why don't you wash my feet? But that's not what he says. Jesus says, wash somebody else's feet. If he would have said, wash my feet, you and I would be in a race to grab a towel, to grab a basin, some water, and to run to the throne and wash the feet of Jesus. But that's not what he said. He said, wash somebody else's feet. Leslie Newbigin says this, that Jesus has laid aside his life for us all, and the debt which we owe to him is to be discharged by our subjection to our neighbors in loving service. Here's the important line. Our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe the master. I owe Jesus for what he has done for me. He went to a cross, and my neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what I owe Jesus. And so that means that my wife is the appointed agent authorized to receive what I owe Jesus. And when I wash her feet, I wash Jesus' feet. What it means is that my kids are the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe Jesus. And I wash Jesus' feet every time that I manage to wash theirs. It means that my church family, you people, are the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe the King, and I somehow wash Jesus' feet when I can wash your feet. My coworkers are the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe the King, and I wash Jesus' feet every time I'm able to wash their feet in some way. When we see clearly who Jesus is, there's no question about what to do. And He is the promised eternal King who takes the posture of a servant so that we can be clean. After a gender reveal, the couple goes home and they immediately know how to paint the walls. If it's a boy, blue walls. If it's a girl, pink walls, right? And when another part of Jesus is revealed to us, we immediately know what to do. He's a king who took the posture of a servant. And so what we do is we take that same posture and we aim it at the people around us and we serve them, we wash their feet, we leverage our words, we leverage our possessions, our money, our time, our ability, and we serve them. That's the posture of the living God. He reigns with a towel, and that's what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom where Jesus sits on the throne of David, exalted there by God Himself because He was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for us, and He will reign on His throne without end. Father God, would you move in power now through your word that we might be transformed, that we might never be the same, and it's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.